Welcome to Listening with Leaders. I'm Doug Noll, lawyer turned peacemaker. I teach executive leaders how to listen to emotions rather than words so that they can become the leaders everyone wants to follow. And I teach those same leaders how to be authentically present, available, and connected to their families, despite being insanely busy. I have learned that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. Learning how to listen to emotions is, in my experience, the foundational skill of life. Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll reveal how you can be on our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. So let's get started. Doug Lennick, welcome to Listening with Leaders. You are the co-founder. Yeah, you're the co-founder and CEO of Think to Perform, which can be found at thinktoperform.com. And that's a two, numeral two. Not yes, a, yes, it's the number two. The word think, the number two, the word perform. Excellent. Well, we basically about, think it helps to think to perform. That's probably a pretty good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your backstory, a little bit about your background, and we'll get into it. Well, my background, you know, history, you know, I started my career. I'm uh, you know, as of this date, I am 71 years old. And I'm kind of uh from that era, of course. I I grew up, I was born in 1952, so I grew up in the 60s, a lot going on in the 60s, as everybody knows from history, people being assassinated all the time, uh, you know, the war going on and so on. And I entered my college uh, life uh, uncertain about what would happen with my draft status. Eventually, uh, the draft ended just before I would have been drafted. Uh, that was the summer between my sophomore and junior year when I was prepared uh, to uh, to enter the military. I wasn't joining, but I would have accepted as a draftee or, you know, it wasn't acceptable in my family to not do that. So I, I would have participated. I remember those days. I'm, a, I'm two years older than you are. Born in okay. All right. Well, good. I remember so, those days well. Yeah. Well, then you remember when it ended and and Johnny uh, Nash did his song, I Can See Clearly Now, and that rang true for me. I could see more clearly now that I don't, now that I know I'm not going into the military, I can start doing some other things. So I'm kind of an entrepreneurial hippie from from that era. Uh, and so, so I started company. My, uh, I started a telesales business. I got into the financial services industry my senior year in college. I was supposed to be an accountant, and I left school to start my uh, career as a financial advisor, essentially with a quarter to go in my degree. So I was, uh, I was a quarter short of a degree in accounting. I will say, though, Doug, uh, in my defense, I did eventually graduate, not from not with an accounting degree, but at age 57, I did get my undergraduate degree post my executive career. So I am now fully qualified to do what I was paid to do. I now have a degree that says I'm qualified. Wow. OK, well, it only took you 50, 57 years <laughs> to get there, right? <laughs> well, I, I thought it was a 40 year degree. Ah. And that I was finishing a year early, ah, there but it was a four-year degree, and I was 35 years late. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That's it. That's the backstory. But but I I started with IDS. IDS got acquired uh, by American Express. I had the good fortune of being involved in that 
uh, the process when American Express was examining us, kind of the due diligence of it all. And so I was fortunate. I was one of the people in our field organization. I was a district manager at that time. That was in 1982. I started my training in the fall of 1973. I became a what was called a registered rep in 1974. And then this acquisition stuff uh, started up in the early 1980s. And so that's when I got to meet all the executives at the time. And it was later I got to read about some of the stories, some of the meetings that I was in in various books written <laughs> about the company. So, but I was just this young guy, didn't know anything, undereducated. I got, I was very fortunate and I had a great opportunity and American Express bought the company. Uh, ultimately, I was able to move forward in uh, field leadership positions and kind of even ended up running the retail distribution business for what became American Express uh, Financial Advisors. So uh, that was a really great opportunity and and I, I learned a lot and I hope I made a difference. I think wow. I did. And you, you've got a uh, thing to perform now, which is a high level executive coaching firm, if I understand it correctly. Well, yes, we do executive coaching. We do business strategy. We're basically a performance enhancement organization. Uh, and so, and I'm a very vision, mission, values kind of guy. So our vision and everybody who works here, you know, for obvious reasons, kind of buys into it. So not everybody buys into the vision in the world, but not everybody works here. But everybody that works here buys into this vision. And our vision is to enhance the world through improving the decision-making and performance of the individuals and organizations we touch. Our mission is to make a positive difference every day. And our values are people, integrity, growth, excellence. And what I try to do, Doug, is really tie everything uh, back to that. And so executive coaching and consulting, keynote speaking, you know, we do a variety of kinds of things. And in order to focus on the human behavior, we've had to understand it. So we really look at the science of it, the neuroscience, which is the brain, and then the psychology of it all, which is the mind, which for some people can get confusing right away. We're talking mind and brain, aren't they the same thing? Answer, no. Uh, you know, so so it's kind of fun. And then we mush that together with real live experience. Like we really did this, you know, so and as you know, us old adults and young adults, too, but adults learn experientially. Most of our learning comes from what we do. Seventy percent from learning experientially, you know, 10 percent we get out of the classroom and books and then 20 percent you know, comes from mentoring. And if we get a great mentor, it's the, it's the, you know, the great multiplier because the mentor helps us understand how to use the 70%. You know, how to, what, what should I experience? Because I'll learn either way, but wouldn't hurt to be pointed in a good direction. Exactly. So yeah. what does it get you excited in the morning? Get you out of bed and get you into the office. What gets me going? Yeah, what gets you, what makes you excited? Get, what's the- I, I genuinely really love 
making a difference. I, I'm a, personally, I have had the good fortune of, of spending time with Richard Leiter. And Richard Leiter wrote the foreword to our book, Don't Wait for Someone Else to Fix It. And, uh, and he's also the best-selling author of The Power of Purpose. And, and with his help, in when I was in my 20s, so we're talking a long ago, with his help, uh, I alt authored a purpose statement which has lasted my purpose. The reason I'm here is to help myself and others achieve our highest and greatest potential. I like that. That's my life. That's what, and so I I live on purpose. I try, yeah, you know, so that's my story. That makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, my purpose is to serve others. Yeah, and, same concept. Right, and I do that, you know, at a, at a variety of different levels, whether I'm working in maximum security prisons, training murderers to be peacemakers, or at the Congressional Budget Office, training senior analysts how to de-escalate members of Congress. Yeah. It is yeah. all about helping others. So, yeah, that's amazing. Um, I, I remember talking, doing some work at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York and talking to them about why otherwise smart people do dumb things with their money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm sure you and I have some very fun stories. That could be a whole nother show. We could trade the story. We, <laughs> the we, Doug and Doug story show. There you go. <laughs> So what do you, as you sit here at 70, you're 71 years old now, right? 71. Yeah, 71. Uh, what, what is it that, that you think is unique about you that you bring to the table that people really look at and value? I, I don't know if it's, you know, the, the thing that I think I didn't realize was unique about me early in life, unlike so many people, I very early in life decided what to think about and and I decided what to think and and I discovered early in my leadership career that most people don't. I'll share with you an example. So I'm this young district manager in the company at at that time IDS Investors Diversified Services which changed its name to IDS Financial Services etc ultimately became American Express uh, Financial Advisors, but IDS Financial Services, what, uh, when we looked at, at us as a company, and I wanted, what's the point I wanna make about it, is I found out early on that most people as a leader, I had a meeting and I was asking everybody on your way to the meeting, because we would start the week, I would kind of wave the checkered flag and my group would, would start the week with a district meeting at 8.15 sharp. Uh, and there were various reasons I wanted it to start at 8.15 sharp. <laughs> and we did started at 8.15 sharp. Not everybody was in their chair, but we didn't wait for this. Yeah, but we started. Uh, and we did fun things with that. But but one day I asked everybody, on your way to the meeting today, what did you think about? And you know, and I didn't have a huge group at the time. I'm gonna say maybe a dozen people. And only one person could remember. I said, What? Yeah. And and I realized 
most people don't decide what to think. So the best advice I can give people, and this is, it's almost unfair. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's, it's, it's totally free, but most, and it's your most useful asset. And possibly because it's free, you don't value it. But you have this free asset, your mind, which operates within your brain, and you get to decide what you want your brain to think about. Your mind gets to decide. And when you decide what to think, it physically changes your brain. And if you do it on purpose, that's called self-directed neuroplasticity. Isn't right. that cool? Right. <laughs> and, you can, and as an old dog, you can learn new tricks. Absolutely. They now know guys in our 70s, like yourself and me, can keep learning. And I am so excited. Oh, my my new mantra that, you know, I am really big on there is no end to better. I, 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 you know, I can't wait to get older, not to get not to be older, but to enjoy getting older. I, I absolutely agree. I, I tell people, stop learning, start dying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. Don't worry, you'll die successfully. I, I listened to, uh, you know, there's this tape that that my, my wife gave me a week before my mother died as a result of a car accident in 1996. The tape was by an exiled Buddhist monk from Tibet, Sogyal Rinpoche. It's called Living Well, Dying Well. Yeah. And he basically says, if you live well, you'll be able to die well. But he says, when it comes to dying, don't worry about it. You will die successfully. He said, <laughs> uh, <laughs> even the people who hang on, they die successfully too. That's so right. the, question, <laughs> the question isn't, will you die? The question is, what will be your state of mind as you die? Right, right. And I, and I hope mine is going to be... Uh, welcoming to whatever's next yeah no i agree i mean i i, I feel yeah. like if you if you live a life of service and you're a hold a beginner's mind all the time so you're always learning and you're never afraid you're never afraid of, of taking risks and new challenges that are appropriate then you're going to live you're going to live a, a good life and so yeah. somebody that's been i i've lived that and i've have been very happy with the with the outcome. Yeah, I mean, you feel all right about oneself. You know, on my wall behind me that you can see there's a a, a, a painting, a, a print of a Goya print, uh, and it's on a prenda, and it was, uh, and it's basically saying, and yet I'm still learning. And on my uh, grandfather, or my grandfather's, my father's gravestone, he was cremated, buried next to my mother, who was not cremated, uh, but he had me put the words. He said, Doug, if I predecease you, I would like you to have on my my uh, gravestone the words, and yet I am still learning. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's on his gravestone. Yeah. And so to me, I figure, you know, there's no end to better. Progress, not perfection. All I have to do every day is get, is progress, and there's no end to better. So I don't have to worry about you know, am I going to hit the wall? There is no wall. <laughs> there is no wall. We, as Carol Dweck says, we keep a growth mindset at all times. Yeah, we just keep growing. Right. So that's why I was so excited to hear that you wanted me to be on your show. So thank you. Oh, you're well. You're you're welcome. 
it's always nice to interview somebody who's like-minded. Uh, <laughs> That's a confirmation bias. You know, I personally prefer people who agree with me. So <laughs> I'm not saying I agree with you, but I'm just saying. No, no, no. But are like-minded. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That's a good way. Good clarification. Big difference. I mean, yes, I, I do agree. There with is. You. I probably do agree with you on a lot of things. but Right. But no, exactly right. But we are like-minded. Like -minded. You know, and, you know, I was, uh, we were looking at some, I'm kind of, a, I enjoy the Socrates, Plato, Aristotle chain. And, you know, Socrates, and I won't get this exactly right, but he basically says, you will basically uh, know you know something when you finally know that you don't know anything. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and I like that, you know. Uh, absolutely, absolutely correct. Yeah. So, and so the more I know, the more I know I don't know. That's right. And that, yeah. that is the basis of knowing, is knowing that you don't know. Which uh, is a humongous amount. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole, whole There's world of more it. that I don't know than I do. Oh, That's my true. goodness. <laughs> my goodness, so true. So this show is called Listening with Leaders for a reason. And that is, I don't, I, my background is a, former trial lawyer and now a peacemaker, um, to me, listening is a foundational skill. And I've learned that listening is a foundational skill of leadership. And I like talking to leaders like yourself and people who work with leaders and to get your take on, on listening and, and how you see it and how important is it. What do you think? Critical. I mean, I think, uh, you know, and again, goes back to when I when we wrote the book, Don't Wait for Someone Else to Fix It. The subtitle is 80 Essentials to enhance your leadership impact at work, at home, and anywhere else that leads you. And, and one of the essentials is the linkage. I used to, in my previous work, I had these broken apart, empathy and compassion. So I look at empathy as uh, an emotional competence, and I look at compassion as a moral principle. And I differentiate between the two, but I do believe one uh, needs to be empathetic to be compassionate, but uh, but not all people who are empathetic are compassionate. So compassion is actively caring. Empathy is I understand, and that requires listening. So I seek to understand. So I had the good fortune of learning from and uh, from Stephen R. Covey. And Stephen M. R. Covey, his son, endorsed our book, but Stephen R. Covey and I had a good relationship. And, and I really, really believe this notion of you seek to understand. And, and so, when you understand, you, be, you achieve empathy. Understanding is, I understand how you feel. I understand. But, and then someone might say, and I really hope, Doug, that someone does something about your plight but I really feel for you. Right. That's empathy without compassion. So let so, me, let me, let me go a little more nuanced on that. Cause I, yeah. I study and I study neuroscience too. There are, oh, I, I have determined that there are two types of listening, type one listening and type two listening. Type one listening is what you're talking about. It's, it's you, we seek to understand, we seek to gain information. And so we do that by asking questions. Occasionally we'll paraphrase to make sure that we understand what somebody else is saying. That's type one listening, and that's what most people think is listening. Yes. The empathy you're talking about, if you're really going to a deep level, is what I call type two listening. 
And in type two listening, the frame of reference is on the speaker, what the speaker's words, intended meaning, and emotions are. And when we are engaged in type two listening, we are there to pick up on words, meaning, and emotions and reflect those back to the speaker for the purpose of validating the speaker and making the speaker feel deeply heard and listened to. I call that listening other people into existence. I love that. And in my experience, when you engage in type two listening, the emotional component is called affect labeling. And it's been I love that. great brain science coming out of a math yeah. lab at UCLA that shows that what happens in the brain when you label emotions or somebody else. Yeah. But when you do this, what my students and clients uh, discover is that the compassion comes automatically. Yes. Well, once, if you, once yes. You start, once you start recognizing and validating somebody else's emotion, you automatically, and by the way, you're right, that kind of empathy, it's called cognitive empathy, is, is, the, is, the, is the cornerstone of all emotional intelligence and emotional competency. Yeah. Once you feel the, the, the compassion comes automatically. You yeah. Automatically. That, yeah. Well, and see that, you know, when Covey and I would talk, you know, because the alignment model that Chuck and I talk about in our book is to align the, the real with, to, with the ideal and achieve goals, it parallels the first three habits. And what Covey and, you know, totally, and I talked about, and you sound like this something would make sense, is if you practice the first three habits, the next three just fall over. Right. You know, similar to what you're describing, right. because compassion is in the second three habits. That's the public victory. The, you know, the private victory is me dealing with me. Right. And if and if I get that, I can't not. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I love I love your insight on that. Right. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. And that I mean that is the secret. And when we talk about, for example, emotional competency, which is emotional self-awareness, self-regulation, and empathy. What I've learned is that when I can teach people cognitive empathy, teach them how to affect label, for example, they automatically develop emotional self, self-awareness and emotional self-regulation. Their emotional intelligence just naturally grows by yes. in this type two listening skill. I mean, it's phenomenal to observe. It, it really is. If you really are trying to understand and and what a lot of people do as as, as I'm sure, I'm, oh, I'll ask you, I, have you experienced like I have that it seems that a lot of people are listening to rebut? That's They're right. listening to catch you. You know that I, I now this don't take no offense, but I take that to be the little lawyer in us. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Did you, yeah, you didn't dot the I right. You didn't That's cross the T right. right. I got gotcha. you. So, right. we, you know, we listen to gotcha. Yeah. I got gotcha you now. Uh, and and that's not what you and I are talking about. We're no. talking about actually, no kidding, listen to understand. That's correct. You know, to understand and, and not only understand from our perspective, but to un- know that, to show from the speaker's perspective. Well, that's exactly the key. You understand what the speaker is saying and feeling, and that's the. Key. Now, are you familiar with Helen Reese's work on empathy? Helen Reese. Helen Reese. No, I'm not. Helen with an H and R R I E S S. She has a great uh, TED talk uh, called Empathy, and uh, and she has a book that she wrote on empathy. She's at Harvard University, but she took the word empathy, and just like you can teach old lawyers and old guys like me, a non-lawyer, new tricks, 
you can teach old doctors new tricks because they the data say that there's an inverse relationship between medical experience and empathy. That's right. And furthermore, there's an inverse relationship between empathy and malpractice lawsuits. Exactly. <laughs> and no, so no, non-empathetic no. people get sued. That's and right. that's also true in business, by the way. So all of you executives that aren't empathetic, wait for your lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because empathetic people don't get sued empathetic. very often. That's right. But well, but, in leadership, I think it's even more important. This, I'm sure you're aware of the Google study that came out two years ago about the importance of psychological safety for high-performing teams. And and uh, yes. Vanessa so Dreskut does great work on that. Amazing. And so the, the question then is, how do you create psychological safety? And the way you create it is through empathy. Yes. If you don't have empathy, you cannot create psychological or emotional safety. We, you're going to have, you're not going to have a high performing team. Doug, you'll appreciate this. We have a, we have this meeting that we do in our company with those that are interested, we call it dialoguing with Doug. Who would have thought of that? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, in one of the sessions, uh, we were talking about um, psychological safety and the importance of that in a growth-oriented organization so people can feel safe. And, and one of the people in the meeting says, I don't even know what that means. And then somebody else says, that's what it means. He says, what do you mean? He says, you're safe enough to say that. I like that. That's what it means. Because if you weren't psychologically safe, you would never say, what the hell are we talking about? You would sit there and bluff your way through the meeting, which a lot of people do. That's right. They don't have psychological safety. I I love this conversation. We don't have enough time. This should be a two hour show. Well, Well, we are kind of running out of time. Yeah. We probably didn't get to anything you had in mind. I'm sorry. Oh, no, this is great. This is the way these conversations always go. Oh, good. <laughs> I didn't want to disappoint right away. No, no, no. I have, I have kind of a vague outline in my head of what I want to talk about. But I'm re- really more interested in exploring, just as we've been doing, kind of what you're thinking is and how you see things. And because that, to, that to me, is what's really interesting. I care less yeah. about stuff. You know, you can well, you know, and the other thing, since we're talking about emotions and deciding what to think, yeah. I would say this to to our viewers and listeners is you you know the beautiful thing is understanding once I get really good at deciding what to think I will realize how I can change my emotions from the inside out because as you know Joe Ledoux did in his work at New York University when we're stimulated from the outside in. We're stimulated emotionally first. That's right. And, well, and, yeah, but but if you get good at deciding what to think, if you get good at that, all of a sudden you you have much more influence over your emotional state. That's emotional. That's emotional self regulation. And I was going to say it was Ledoux and Damasio and all these guys really influenced my thinking. Um, today, when I teach, the first the first mindset shift I tell people is we are we are ninety eight percent emotional and only two percent rational. Get rid of this idea that we're emotional being uh, that we're rational beings, because once you start seeing that we're emotional, not rational, that doesn't mean that we don't have we can't engage in critical thinking. It doesn't mean that we can't engage in problem solving. It just means that at the root, at the synapse, the decision is being made: is this pleasure or is this pain? And that's emotional. 
And every decision is an emotional decision at some level. And once yes. you recognize that, then you begin to see the power of emotions. And then you begin to understand, for example, in high conflict situations or where there's strong emotions or fights and arguments, can't solve that with logic and, and reasoning. No. All these emotions. I, I like that. I really like that. And and recently I've been thinking, because I'll add that to my thinking. Yeah, steal it. I, I, I like how you said it, because I, I also believe that at some level, every decision is a values-based decision. Absolutely. So, so the question is, which, you know, the if I've taken the time to to reflect on my values, the ones that I really, really care about, if I've been thoughtful about that, those are my deep, what I consider my ideal self, you know, aiming to be my ideal self, which is the first essential. Uh, that that helps me understand what I'd ideally like to be. But if I know my real self, the second essential, and I pay attention to myself, I might find in the moment that emotional being is valuing something that this right. long-term guy would rather not. So at that moment, can I recognize well enough what the heck is going on so that I can reflect and reframe my thinking so that I can respond in a way consistent with my deeply held values? Yeah. And that's the, the victory. That's right. And the way you develop the way I have found to develop that is again cognitive empathy, listening to and reflecting other people's emotions. Oh, I love that. As you do that, you, you become emotionally self-aware of your own emotions. And then to your point, you start becoming aware of when you're feeling emotions and how those emotions are going to affect your decision-making. I teach a course at Pepperdine, the Pepperdine Law called a Decision-Making Under Stress and Conflict. And I emphasize, empathy. I emphasize this to my students that understanding emotions and decision-making is the most critical skill you can learn because there's no such thing as an abstract decision. I mean, even, you know, I, I think that even though Socrates and Plato and Aristotle were great thinkers, I think they got it wrong when they said that, Aristotle said it, what separates us from other species is our capacity to reason. I don't think that's right. Damasio, I think is more correct. He said, yeah, right. what, separate, what, what separates us from other species are our emotions. Right. And, and so we, and unfortunately we live in a culture that, that um, makes, emotion bad and evil and weak and suspect. And well, and you know, and my point of view is human beings, part of the human factor is humans are born, uh, we are emotional beings and we are moral beings. That's so, right. and, and I personally think, and I'd be interested in your point of view on this, Doug, but I believe with the rise of the application of artificial intelligence, and the pervasiveness of that soon to be followed really soon by quantum and quantum is going to leapfrog. If people think AI is fast, wait right. till they see quantum. Right. Uh, that's going to be blown away fast. Well, here's but I believe human intelligence has to be better at what Dan Heath would say, solving the problem upstream. We've got to inform this AI and quantum with some collective human awareness so that the world that we live in is not just built for two or three people it's it's actually considers there's eight billion maybe there'll be 10 maybe there'll be 20 what are we going to do yeah and so 
I, I think that's going to be the major limitation of, of AI. That is that there is no way to, to computationally create emotions. Right. In, at least not yet. And I, not I, yet. I, yeah. I, maybe quantum computing will have the power to do that. But the human brain is still a pretty marvelous device. For yes, <laughs> it's it's remarkable. And yeah. I, and I, and it's a blessing and we have to treat it as such. That's right. And and so I am on a crusade to raise the human intelligence and I hope everybody chooses to think to perform. So and and please buy my book too. To right. of you. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck Wachendorf or my co-author would like you to buy the book. Okay. My publisher, everybody. You're making a lot of money off of royalties, right? <laughs> I you know what? You you and I both know the deal on that. Uh, I, I will say, right? I'm doing okay on my fourth book. I I, I, I did okay on moral intelligence. Moral intelligence has, you know, been, you know, we've been fortunate. It's been published in 13 languages. Uh, it was pirated by uh, the Chinese the first time, uh, uh, which I thought they missed the point. You know, you don't steal a book called Moral Intelligence. Right. Uh, but one more question, I'll let you go. What's one yeah. thing? About, what's one thing about yourself, Doug, that we would never know unless you revealed it to us? You would never know that um, I both learned a lot and had a lot of trauma associated with going to eight schools in 12 years. My family was not well to do. I, we, you know, and, and I don't even know if there was, I think there was something called kindergarten for people. I started in the first grade wow. and my family moved eight times. I went to eight different schools in those next 12 years. And every time I moved was both traumatic and confidence building huh. because every time I wondered, will I be academically competitive? Will I be athletically competitive? Will anybody like me? And what I found out is wherever I went, I was okay. But I, in the process, I became a bedwetter. Um, I did all kinds of other things that were less good. So my thing is people should know this about me. My glass, just like your glass, is half empty and half full. Every day, all day. Thank you so much for your time, Doug. Been a great conversation. Thank you. Doug Knoll here. Thank you so much for listening to Listening with Leaders. If you are a successful executive leader who would like to be on this program, please visit podcast.dougnoll.com slash podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you please share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on the social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag listeningwithleaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to my website, dougnoll.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. 
That's at Douglas E. Noel. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next show.